hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. As the man said, I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Today is the day that we're kicking off our annual outlook. Today, we'll be looking at the big picture. We'll look back at what happened last year and what I think is going to happen over the next year. I have to tell you, this is probably the most challenging one I've had to do in the last 10 years because there are just so many issues up in the air. Next week, I'm going to give you my favorite stock picks for the coming year. So you don't want to miss that either. If you're a long-term listener, you're aware that I'm a conservative value manager. I'm cheap. In other words, I'm a bottoms up type investor. Let me explain why I do it this way. If you're a macro big picture type investor, well, you're looking at the world and you're trying to determine where you want to be invested based off of all kinds of data. Things like GDP, interest rates, currencies, commodities, and so on. For example, after looking at all the data, you find a country that you think has good prospects. So then you start digging deeper to find a couple of sectors that you might want to be investing in. And once you've found a couple of good sectors, then you start looking at the individual companies and you start doing your research on those companies from there. Or maybe you just buy a basket of stocks. I don't know. My point here is that by starting from the top down, you have a lot of decisions to make. And at any point along the way, well, you could be wrong. And that could lead you to be on a path that you don't want to be on. I have a much better way. It's the path that value investors take. And I think it's the most logical, common sense way of doing it. It's just my opinion. When you're a value investor, you ask yourself two basic questions. One is, is this a good or even great company? And two, what price am I willing to pay for it? Instead of the other way around, where you have to make dozens and dozens of decisions before you even get to analyzing the business. Over the long term, the numbers bear this thesis out. According to a study by French and Fama, uh, it's a pretty well-known study. And Ibbotson used to put out this great chart on the returns, but they haven't done it since they were acquired by Morningstar. Anyhow, from 1927 through early last year, 2017, or actually the year before, pardon me, value stocks significantly outperformed growth stocks. By significantly, I mean by about three and a half percent annually during that time. And that's a long time. Value, well, value doesn't outperform all the time. Sometimes growth and momentum. Well, that works and it works pretty well. Some good examples are 1998 to 2000, 2003 to 2007, and more recently with the FANG stocks. During some of these periods, it's worked very well until it didn't. And more than a few people suffered a permanent loss of capital. That's money they'll never get back. I'm fond of saying 
I like to buy a dollar for 70 cents. If you bought a great company when you thought it was inexpensive, a 70 cent dollar, and immediately after you did, the market went down. Now that company is trading at a 50 cent dollar. How angry or mad can you be? You bought a dollar for 70 cents. You got a great deal. How would you know that the market would be selling them for 50 cents? You can't know that. But what you do know is that you bought a dollar for 70 cents and a dollar is worth a dollar. So my suggestion is to be value oriented and be patient. Patience isn't a virtue that all of us possess. Investors, they constantly feel like they need to outperform the market, which honestly, I I never really understood. To help you with this, I would suggest that you have a good, solid financial plan in place. That way, you know what types of returns you need to achieve to get to your goals instead of just chasing the market. Chasing the market has led to more than one downfall. That's really my message today. Have a plan. Be value-oriented and exercise patience. If you do those three things, I think you'll be successful. Let's step away real quick. And when we come back, we'll get started on the big picture. This is Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing. We are back in a moment. You've worked hard. You've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Well, thank you and welcome back to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get started with the big picture. Last year stood in stark contrast to 2017. 2017, we had a year that was pretty spectacular. From November 2016 through November 2017, we had 13 months of consecutive gains. That hadn't happened in the past 90 years. And the maximum drawdown during that time was less than 3%. People had basically forgot what it's like for the market to go down. And then there was last year. When the market ended the year, the market being the S&P 500, the market ended the year down, eh, we'll call it 4.4%. That's total return, down 4.4% compared to being up almost 22% the year before. The volatility that was non-existent in 2017 came roaring back last year. Investors' concerns have broadened out. 
They're worried about the U.S. and the global economy slowing down, interest rates going up, and of course, the drama in Washington. But I don't think things are as bad as they appear at the moment. Right now, fourth quarter GDP is expected to grow at about 2.8%. That would be down from the previous two quarters where we were growing at 4.2% and 3.4%. So we're definitely seeing a slowdown from the pace that we were at, but I don't think that we'll see negative numbers that would push us into recession, at least not this year. Unemployment is near a 50-year low. Right now, we're at 3.9%, but back in September, we were sitting at 3.7%. The last time you saw those numbers were back in 1969, and the reason that you saw the uptick in the unemployment rate was because you had more people entering the workforce. Real median household income and disposable income are at or near all-time highs. Individual debt levels are down. When income is up and debt is down, people are feeling pretty good about themselves in general. Remember, consumer spending accounts for about 70% of GDP, and it's generally been a source of stability. And this shows up in the consumer confidence numbers, which are still pretty darn high. They've come off the boil from September's reading of just over 100 to the last release about three weeks ago where they were sitting at 98.3. But these numbers are still at near a 15-year high. Housing has slowed down a bit, and that's because mortgage rates have gone up. But new households are still being formed, and it doesn't appear to me that we're overbuilding. From a historical standpoint, interest rates are still pretty low. If interest rates are low, that's got to mean inflation is low, and it is. Inflation in December was 1.8%. It came down from that high of 2.9% during the summer, and energy prices probably had something to do with that. But still, it's below its long-term average. Inflation is around 2 2.5%. So when we step back and we look at things, things aren't terrible. Yes, we're slowing down, but right now things seem okay. And That doesn't mean I'm without worry because I worry about a lot of things. I think the thing that's on the top of investors' minds at the moment is the Fed and interest rate monetary policy. People are worried about the Fed in their effort to get rates back to normal and that they may make a mistake and overdo it, choking off the growth in the economy. When is enough enough? It's hard to tell until after the fact. Monetary policy is a blunt instrument, and it takes time to show up. But in the meantime, we do have some guideposts that we can use. The market is testing Chairman Powell's resolve, as it has with every chair since Paul Volcker. The market dropped after the December Fed meeting, and that's probably where they made a mistake of raising interest rates. The high for the S&P was back in September. It was about a week before the September Fed meeting. I think that meeting, when they raised rates for the third time that year, was the straw that broke the camel's back. The bond market had been saying that the U.S. economy had reached its neutral rate. 
That's the rate where you go from accommodative to restrictive policy. The bond market was telling us that because the, well, they were telling us because the yield on the 10-year treasury stalled at 3.1% on several occasions. My best guess is that the Fed will listen to the market and be on hold from here and may even cut rates later this year if they see any further slowing. Another question that investors are thinking about is, are we going to enter a recession this year? I don't think that'll be the case, at least not this year. We still have enough fiscal stimulus coming into the economy that's already operating near full capacity. We have enough fiscal stimulus coming in to keep us out of recession until 2020 or even beyond that. The job market is doing well and the consumer is doing well, but I'm watching. Investors are also focusing on the yield curve as a sign that a recession is coming. They look for shorter term rates being higher than longer term rates or an inverted curve, as they say. When short rates are higher than long-term rates, it's been a good predictor of a recession. True, the yield curve has inverted on a number of maturities. For example, the five-year treasury versus the two-year treasury, the five-year versus the three-year, and the seven-year versus the one-year. But the primary one that I watch is the 10-year treasury compared to the two-year treasury. And that has not inverted. Keep in mind, As I talked about in previous shows, equity returns usually peak after the yield curve has inverted. So not all all is lost. What about Washington? I think this is above my pay grade, but here's my take on it. The stock market has decided that Washington has become enough of an impediment that it had to take a couple of points off the market multiple. Markets hate uncertainty. And when things are less certainty, less certain, you should pay less for stocks. It's, it's that simple. The U.S.-China trade war doesn't appear to be nearing a, res, a resolution. Both parties seem to be willing to sacrifice the economy to gain an advantage in 2020. So in the absence of new deregulatory initiatives or tax cuts to balance things out, Stocks should trade a cheaper multiple to earnings than before. And what about those earnings? The consensus estimates on the S&P 500 for this year are currently sitting around $172, which represents a 7% increase over last year. So we're trading at just about 14 or 15 times this year's earnings. Yes. This is a dramatic reduction in what we've experienced over the last two years, where earnings were growing at better than 20%, thanks to low interest rates, tax cuts, and deregulation. But the reality is, we couldn't keep growing at 20% plus forever. High single-digit earnings growth seems much more reasonable to me. From a short-term technical perspective, things look much better than they did just Just a month ago, the market had had this strong downside momentum in place since October, and I think it's finally been broken. I've been saying that I needed to see a couple of days of strong buying to convince me that things are going to get better, and I've seen it. 
We've had two sessions, two days, December 26th and January 4th, where the upside volume has overwhelmed the downside momentum by 10 to 1 or more. Not only has momentum turned around, but we've also had a change in investors' attitudes. The investment sentiment sentiment indicators, those are the contrarian indicators we talked about talk about here, now show a significant level of pessimism for stocks. I've said that we need to see investors giving up before we hit the bottom. The latest report from Investors Intelligence show a significant drop in the number of bulls and the highest numbers of bears since the end of the market correction in February 2016. And the Ned Davis trading sentiment composite shows the most pessimism since the 2011 bear market bottom. So individuals have been bailing on stocks. As a matter of fact, they pulled more than $75 billion from equity mutual funds and ETFs during the month of December. When the herd is stampeding in one direction, Often it makes sense to go in the other direction. And I think it's time for long-term investors to do some buying. So let me pull all this together here. The economy is slowed down. Blame it on what you'd like. Interest rates, the political environment, U.S.-China trade tensions, slowing global growth. But I don't think we'll have a recession this year. I think we have enough keep us going for another year. I do think these things have given us an opportunity, at least in the near term, as equity prices have fallen. For the year, this is when I pull out the sealed envelope to reveal my prediction for the end of the year, along with a drum roll, I think earnings will grow on the order of 7%. And I think that the Fed will pause. That being the case, then the equity multiple should expand modestly from where it sits now, not back to where it was, but it should expand modestly. If earnings continue to grow at 7% and the 2020 estimates are for somewhere around $185 on the S&P, and I increase the earnings multiple to 16 and a half times, I come up with the S&P finishing the year at a little over 3,000. Now, that implies a 15% return. And that may say sound high. It sounds a little high to me, but that's how the math works out. And that's really only 3% higher than the all-time high set back in September. I am by no means going to hang my hat on a macro forecast. Too many things can go uh, wrong along the way. I'm going to focus on individual companies that have great fundamentals, and I'm going to let them compound over long periods of time. Next week, the second part of the annual outlook, I'm going to focus on the companies that I think will do well over the coming year. Remember, you always need to do your own research and see if they make sense to you. We're going to wrap it up. We'll be back with part two of the outlook next week. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them.
listen to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.